Action Park Media. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glut. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today on American Glutton, I'm talking to Thomas DeLauer. Thomas is an author and performance coach who went from a 280-pound corporate executive to losing over 100 pounds and being on the covers of health and fitness magazines worldwide. Thomas has a real interesting take on how to follow a ketogenic diet, and today we are talking about that, the microbiome, and a bunch of other things in between. You can find him on Instagram at Thomas DeLauer. Thomas DeLauer, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. This is great. Your your trip from where you were at to where you are now is fucking wild and so impressive. What what were you what were you doing like what in your head back when you were you were do, you were doing investments you were I was in, I was in the the healthcare world so I was an executive recruiter and then I was in like ancillary lab services the private equity world but like business you yeah. were a businessman yeah and was there any thought at that time about health were you <laughs> were you like did you look the way you look now as a kid no no so as a kid I was super skinny and I was like a long distance runner, a super nerdy cross country, you know, like that kind of thing. Actually, the polar opposite of, you know, what I kind of am now. And I just beat the crap out of my body running so much. That's really the kind of the story. I blew out my knees by the time I was like 15. It's just running so much. Uh, so, no, I definitely didn't look like I look now. I, I was pretty emaciated. <laughs> just kind of. I always wonder these things because, I, I you know. I want to go like in my head. I want to rationalize everything. I want to. I want really. It's not. It's not judgmental, but it's like, how hard is this guy working? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In in and and then I think like if a guy like you looked the way you do at nineteen and then gained weight and then lost it, I'm just trying to go like, did his body remember this, or you literally went from being an obese person to being as fit as you could be. Yeah, I went from, I mean, it was like a serious Alice in Wonderland type thing. I went from being super skinny to being super fat. And then it was kind of one of those things where, okay, while I was fat, it was a perfect opportunity to build some muscle while I was there, right? I mean, so that was kind of my thought process is, okay, while I'm trimming down, I've got this extra clay mass, might as well try to build something out of it. And I mean, make no mistake, I mean, I I worked out when I was younger. I mean, I worked out in high school, I worked out in college, I, I had a decent foundation. I wasn't big by any stretch of imagination. I was, I played a winger in rugby. So I was, you know, the skinny guy. Um, but I knew, I knew how to work hard, you know, so make no mistake. It wasn't, I don't want to make it seem like I was like some sloppy obese person. I was a person that went from being an athlete to still eating like an athlete when I was working in a high stress, sedentary corporate setting. And I mean, that's the story of a lot of people, right? They just, I don't know what happened. I was an athlete in college and all of a sudden, (laughs) you know, and I, this is something I also think about a lot. The When I look at obese people and when I think about myself as an obese person, I always am also thinking about how much extra lean tissue we have just to support the adipose tissue. Yeah. And and I go like the, the opportunity to re- retain that muscle and to have more muscle mass than average is also right there to every – pretty much mostly anybody who's obese yeah. um it 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 often makes me like i don't think everybody has to be muscular the way you are the way i am but i know that when i went from my biggest to my smallest and and i and i looked like i had wasting disease or something like that and and i was really in such a deep caloric deficit that i i wasn't retaining much muscle mass um, I was unhappy. Yeah, uh, it wasn't the result I wanted, and and so I think when I look at you and what you advocate for and your your plans and stuff like that, I'm like, that's so awesome because 
just the idea of losing a bunch of weight and retaining some muscle or building muscle is is not really part and parcel with mainstream diet plans, no, you no. know? No, not at all. I mean, I've really advocated. I, I've the pendulum kind of swings with what I what I get into, and I, I I've really I've gone from being sort of a dogmatic. This is what worked for me to much more of a well. Now that I'm in much more of a maintenance mode, there's it doesn't make sense to have a dogmatic approach because what works for me is being what I call metabolically flexible, doing a little bit of everything. I've been just hammered before because I experimented with plant-based. I've been hammered because I experimented with carnivore. And now I just, I self-experiment on myself. And you know what? I get the best results I've ever had in my entire life by experimenting and doing different shit. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know you did plant-based. What was that? Yeah, I did it for like a month. I mean, it was... And we're talking full vegan? So vegan keto. Whoa. So, <laughs> so like lots of avocados extreme. and, and uh, coconut oil. Yeah, ridiculously unsustainable as far as prep was concerned. <laughs> right. Ridiculously unsustainable. But, I mean, and again, I get probably will get just destroyed for saying this. I have to say I felt great. I lost a crap load of muscle during that period of time. Uh, mentally, I felt pretty good. Uh, my complexion, if you look back at like the videos when I did it, I was like gray. So I was clearly missing some stuff, but I, I did feel good. But what's kind of funny is if you, a lot of the plant-based community will say that, well, I feel great, but they don't always look good. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, don't think you, I don't, I, listen, I don't think anybody should get pushback on any of this stuff because I think the only time I, and, and like, I, I know what you're saying. I know this kind of stuff happens and people have feel very strongly about yeah. stuff, but like, unless you're not making a moral claim for anyone. No. You, you're and and I've watched your stuff. You're not saying this is the only way to lose weight, you know, or even the best way. You're saying this was my way. That's what this is what I found to be workable. I don't I don't think that should ever be a problem. No, well I agree, and I think it comes down to your passion, right? So I advocate for the most part within my life. I enjoy intermittent fasting and I enjoy cyclical keto. Why? Because I fucking like it. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, and, and do I enjoy the research on it? I sure as hell do. But does, it, does that mean that a calorie doesn't matter? Of course not. Like, right. I, I mean, I still have logic with all of this. And I still believe that, you know, the nice thing about keto that I appreciate is that it's a, you know, a perpendicular diet that can intertwine with lots of different things. You can do, you know, vegan keto. You could do carnivore keto. You could do, you know, whatever. So there's a lot of different protocols that you can kind of intertwine with it. So, I find for me, it just works really well and I enjoy talking about it. But make no mistake, that doesn't mean that I think that's the only way to do it. I just enjoy it. Yeah, I I, I, I definitely also had the feeling on keto, like if I was going to Europe or something like this or, or just pick a different restaurant, it's fairly easy, I think, to, you know, take the bun off a burger or take the pita off a shawarma or something yeah, like yeah. that. You know what I mean? Um, whereas, honestly, the way I kind of do l lower fat right now, when I'm at a restaurant, I'm like, that must be poached, no oil, and yeah. then I don't always trust the totally. people. You know what I mean? Where keto, I think you, you have a, a larger range of options. Um, you know, you go to an airport, You I can find food to eat, but when I was doing keto, I never really had to think too far ahead. Yeah. You know, any sandwich, I know I can figure out the keto nature of it. So I, I think that's totally makes sense to me. Yeah, you, you nailed it because I always tell people like when the nice thing about keto, if you're traveling is, yes, you have just that luxury when you are trying to keep it very clean carbohydrate the issue you run into is you're not going to find a sweet potato vending machine at the airport. Right. So then you're going down this, okay, okay, cook me that rice, but make sure there's no oil in it. And, uh, and that like, let's be honest, yeah. you go to a restaurant, there's going to be oil in it. There's oil in it. You know what I yeah. mean? And it's yeah. usually, you know, soybean, you know, garbage oil that doesn't make you feel too good. And it's, and then again, but it's just like, if you end up thinking about it too much, you become this like orthorexic kind of, sick mentality that is just as bad as being obese right? <laughs> it's like you just go in the other direction and so you have to you have to do what works for you and it's just being able to even from a mitochondrial standpoint like what happens within the cell like you have to be able to allow that cell 
to adapt to different fuel sources. Like there are long tail studies with the ketogenic diet where, okay, if you do keto for too long without exposure to consuming some dietary carbohydrates, you develop less insulin sensitivity. Why? Because the cell's never having a fucking opportunity to utilize glucose as well. So of course it's going to, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So I always, yeah, if you're going to do keto, you need to be strict about making sure that you are taking time off unless you're doing it for therapeutic reasons, unless you're doing it, you know, there are many people, you know, epileptics, things like that, different neurodegenerative diseases that I absolutely think, yes, okay, stay strict. There's a different, different mechanism of action there. But you know, you have to, if keto is your choice, like it is for me, because I like how I feel cognitively, sometimes it takes more effort for me to say, and more discipline to be like, okay, I have to come off and I have to come off for four weeks. And it might be hard for a little while because there's transition period, but I'll thank myself later. My results end up, you know, being much better that way. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I never, I never got that deep into it and understanding it. I, I really, I think it was just that I, I was, tr- you know, I wasn't being responsible for myself when I did keto. I was just going like, as long as I don't eat carbs, I can eat whatever I want. Yeah. And this is not, this is not the case, you know, um, uh, taking pork rinds and, and heavy whipping cream and cream cheese and making bagels and putting bacon and, and American cheese on them. <laughs> this is not, and eating a bunch of that, yeah. right? This is not the way to lose weight. And that was really my main focus was I just want to lose weight, right? I just want to figure this out. And so once I started to um, really look at my behavior and so associated with food and how I ate, I it just, it just became like, oh, I can eat this other stuff. I'm not having a secondary problem that I'm dealing with. It's really just me. Um, but I think what, whatever gets you there yeah. is is valid no i totally agree and it's a lot of times the root issue still rears its ugly head sure right i mean i see countless times and let's be realistic there's a lot of people that have struggled with their weight have struggled with obesity they don't have the same results that i have with keto let's be real but they might have equal or better results with something else it doesn't mean that one is better than the other it just means that maybe they're not addressing the root issue right Right. and what i liked about keto for me is it gave me the mental wherewithal to come to terms with that i i still to this day say i like keto because of how it makes my brain feel and because of how my brain feels i make better dietary decisions if i felt as clear in my brain on carbs as i do on keto I would absolutely go to carbs. Yeah. It's not, it's not a question of that. It's it's it is better for my DNA, if you want to call it that, because it wires my brain fun- better. I'm better to better to make decisions that really work for me. Um, I mean, yes, there's you know you can count all the research surrounding histone deacetylase and all the you know genetic stuff, but really, I mean, if you get down to it, if you dig into the research, you could probably find something to just support eating a dog turd too. Right? Yeah. yeah this was a, this is the funniest thing because I've been thinking lately about the how invested in quote unquote science people get and yeah. and the the idea that science has some. Uh, opinion on what we should be doing when science tells you what is and how we use it is up to us right and so you know there's a scientific reason that we have speed limits somebody did scientific calculations to go like how do we whatever that whatever their intent was and they came up with this thing do you never, does everybody never break the speed limit? Is this, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, that's a good point. And, and when you do, are you doing it going like, I'm putting everyone's life at risk? And if you do that, are you an evil bad person, right? All of this is just to say like, and then to your point, like salt is bad, salt is good, you need salt, salt is poison. I, I think about salt a lot simply because I think for the most part, what we knew mainstream about salt turns out to have been a bunch of bullshit, Dude, no you know? Shit. Yeah, totally. And, and, 
and now I'm reading something else where like salt can affect your immune system. Everything's immune system now. I'm like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, it's going to be marketable. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you know what's good for the immune system? Not eating too much and exercising. That's really 100%. good for. But that's not being really pushed on no. people because you have to, you know. The McDonald's, stuff. Yeah, the McDonald's <laughs> lobby spends a lot of money. Yeah, 100%, man. And that's where you look at, I mean, again, it's uh, where's the research coming from? Where are the, do- I mean, it's, they're just people, right? It's just like, there's people that are conducting these studies. It's just organizations that have, I hate the word agenda, so I don't even want to say that, but they have some motives. They have their own thought processes that they want to reinforce or validate. They're just humans, just like how we walk through life, validating our own, you know, insecurities and whatever so you know when you look at i've been on an interesting kick lately thinking about sleep because it's gotten me to that same thing like who's who's the jackass that said we need exactly eight hours i'm kind of curious because there's days where i sleep four hours and i am a fucking rock star the next day there's days where i sleep eight hours and i'm a total piece of crap like so i'm like there's that's not a magic number. So is the whole eight hours of sleep thing going to be like the food guide pyramid where like all of a sudden everyone's like, what the, like 12 servings of grains, like anyone with eyes can see that's not realistic and not exactly the best choice, but we're getting there. And I think we are right. Cause now we're starting to see like, Oh, sleep efficiency is important. And, um, you know, so then is now, that the food pyramid really says 12 servings of like grains? Like, yeah. It's, it's, it's you know, I know it's, it's the foundation. Yeah. It's like bedrock. This is what you start your diet on, grains. It's, and then everything else builds from there. Yeah. Twelve like servings fats and, you know, fats and oils sparingly, you know, and it's like, I mean, a lot of that's been flipped on its head. And I'm not just saying that as a, you know, an advocate for keto. Like, I think, you know, even realistically, like looking at a Mediterranean approach that still consumes a decent amount of carbohydrates, you know, moderate amounts and, you know, lower levels of, of gluten coming in from their diet because they're getting a lot more amaranth and quinoa and things like that. So... I think that that definitely needs to be reevaluated. And I don't think with the food guide pyramid that it's anybody's ill will. Like, I really don't. Like, in working... You don't think that we had an abundance of wheat at some oh, point? Oh, yeah, I totally oh, do. Okay. I totally do. I just think right now the reason it's changing. In my work with the like U.S. Special Forces and with the military, like, I know firsthand, like, it takes so much to drive bureaucratic change. And it's not that I – don't, I don't think they're sitting there thinking, like, let's continue to pummel – 10 to 15 servings of bread on these people. I don't think, I think the amount of time it takes to actually have serious change with that, we vastly underestimate and everything else takes priority, right? Like everything right now, now focus on immune system in other areas and how can we get the short-term effect? So everything dietary is always going to take a back seat. Are there agendas? I think there's some money at play for sure. And what's interesting when you look at the whole like gluten thing and I don't again I'm not going to demonize gluten but when you look at the data what's interesting is it's not necessarily the gluten that is getting worse it's our consumption of the gluten that is starting to trigger somewhat of an intolerance right so if you look at frozen Sarah from the 1950s where they saw okay well people could actually consume gluten with out almost any instance of celiac almost any instance of intolerance right okay you take that same frozen sarah and expose it to you know today's wheat okay it doesn't have the same effect right? i mean it has the same effect right so it doesn't matter whether it's people from the 1950s then but if you expose the gluten from the 1950s to people now they have a result like a change right. so the point with that is that we've changed we've had call it epigenetic whatever we have had a change because of the overconsumption of something granted yes wheat is different sure and there's you know mass produced and are there roundup in it and whatever yeah of course we can go down that but overconsumption of something is definitely bad and i think we're going to start to see that now with like tapioca right like tapioca is in everything how long is it going to be before we start seeing people develop resistance and intolerances to tapioca it's like if you go out and you consume nothing but watermelon for the next like two years you're probably going to start to develop some weird reaction to watermelon right yeah th- th- this has been shown in the my favorite study that shows how immediately our dna can change is the and and there could be some argument that this is just a theory or not conclusive or whatever but if you look at the dutch hunger winter study where there was a famine in in Europe uh i think it was the 1940s the children that were um that were that were either 
in utero at the time or very young all developed like a predisposition for excess fat, diabetes, like a whole bunch of stuff simply because their their genes changed because their parents starved to death. Yeah. You know, and and that's a pretty immediate that's not like, you know, somebody was saying like we haven't evolved enough to eat bread. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> yeah. I think we can probably evolve to eat anything pretty quickly. Yeah. But, you know, shifts can happen immediately, generation to generation. And I don't know if it's because, um, you know, historically famine is so prevalent yeah. that we're, we're accustomed to rapid changes yeah. with regard to that. I don't know. But, yeah, I think... Um, I think the American diet is not what I would call healthy. No. And so, and it's been getting kind of steadily more and more unhealthy just in my lifetime. Yeah. You know, I don't know what effect that could, I mean, it must be having some effect. You can look at it at the rate of obesity. When I was a little fat kid, there were not very many other little fat kids. Yeah. There are a ton now. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's so wild when you look at just like, like, I the quality of food is changing in the sense that like hyper palatability everything is at the forefront now so even in an effort to create quote unquote better for you foods they're still missing the point of like what triggers us to eat more and what triggers us to overeat and it's at that point when you can cross this threshold and say yes I mean at that point it's a very clear as day calories in calories out conversation the hyper palatability of the stuff that is in our food now even if it's look at look at the keto industry i pick on my own group there right it's like i mean hyper palatable super sweet keto cookies everything's savory i get it like yeah bring some reality into life for, for people that are doing keto that want to have some sweet stuff totally get it but you're still triggering that same kind of just conditioning and dopamine response that triggered the addiction to food in the first place. So I think the hyper palatability. So even, even though we are in some ways trying to get away from some of these like unhealthy things in an effort to do that, we're getting more and more and more processed. And I think that's where we're really going to run into an issue. And what's so funny is 10 years ago when I first started keto before it was ever like, you know what it is right now, it was so easy to lose weight on keto because what happened when you went keto is by default you ate whole fucking foods right right like i would eat high quality cheese i would eat chicken i would eat beef i would eat eggs i would eat butter i would eat but i wasn't there wasn't a lot of sneaky shit going no. on back then i remember the first time i did atkins it was a it was a lot of steaks yeah that's what that was like my main source of fuel um and if i cut to my most recent iteration of keto, which is still years ago, it was like keto pancakes, keto bagels, yeah. um, keto ice cream, yeah. keto cookies, yeah. like all of this stuff to, to the point where I was just like, this is fucking weird. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like yeah. none of this is good, healthy food. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, it's a lot of it ends up being more processed because, again, they're just trying to appeal to the masses. So it's I'd order pizzas and just eat the top of a pizza. Yeah. And I don't even think that's so healthy. No, I mean, well, it's better than a lot of the weird concoctions that are out there right now. Right. I mean, it really is. like Smashing pork rinds to make like this weird flour and mixing totally. it with a little almond flour. That's a that I, I've done that. It was it was it. In my in my mind right now, it's pretty bizarre. Yeah, no, it definitely is, and it's. I mean, that's why I feel like when you can rotate and you can go through some different dietary protocols or patterns, and a find what works for you, but b like let's just jump to something that's totally wild, the microbiome for a minute, and like that is full disclaimer. Like we are so just scratching the tip of the iceberg with that, like just the barely the surface. So. Right now, the general theme with the microbiome is they lean back on diversity as best. Okay, And the reason that they say that is because we don't know enough about one individual strain to say that one is good, one is bad. And there's a shitload of strains. Oh my God, dude, it's fucking ridiculous. So it's like there's a few that are heavily studied, back, you know, Bacteroidetes, Firmicutes, which are largely, you know, Bacteroidetes, more healthy individuals, Firmicutes, you know more obese and things like that there's some pretty again strong correlations but that doesn't equal causation right so yes they default to okay diversity is best but what's so wild is like when you look at every time you change your diet 
the change in your microbiome in that adaptation that occurs. It's called the hormetic curve, which I'm sure you're familiar with. I mean, you have a hormetic stressor to a certain degree, obviously triggers an adaptation in which you build more resilience and you, you get stronger and you get better. Your new baseline is higher. And then there's a very sharp drop off with that hormetic curve. You know, it's curve, 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 and then a very fine line between where that hormetic curve is too much. Let's just use. Um, and this is when the diet is too consistent or for no, too long? No, it's more so I'm going to make getting to a point about like when you change the diet okay. and using an example of like sort of that hormetic curve. You know, if you were to uh, have a bunch of cold exposure to try to build resiliency, right? Like Wim Hof style stuff. Well, to a certain point, that's going to be great. and You're going to get stronger. But to a certain point, you trigger so much reactive oxygen species and so much stress in your body that just like anything, it becomes very toxic, right? Right. So same kind of thing. Like if you were to sit in a sauna at 250 degrees, maybe for a few minutes, you're actually building some resiliency. But if you start doing that for an hour every day, you're going to beat yourself up and you're going to get sick, right? Just, Just like anything. Well, the microbiome has this weird effect when you switch you know dietary patterns the microbiome changes tremendously in an adaptation right you have different fuels different fibers different things like that which is very very good but it's also triggering a stress on your body that is good a stress that allows your body to adapt again adapting to glucose adapting to fats i am all about just how do we get as widely and just diversely adapted as we can like our goal isn't to be like i want to be the best possible bacon eater that I can eat. So my body just thrives on bacon. Well, I go from this thought process of, well, fuck, what happens if we run out of bacon? Yeah. Like, then I'm going to suck. You know, I don't want to just be dependent on bacon. Again, extreme analogy. But I want to know that, you know, I look at this from like a tactical side of things. Like, how do I get through life in the most efficient and just streamlined way possible where I'm just my best self upon all different avenues? Um, You know, I don't want to be the keto guy that, eats a sandwich with bread and then feels like crap for three days. That's not exactly efficient. Okay. Right. Granted, I want to have the discipline to not be able to eat that sandwich if I wish. But the point is, is that I want to be able to also be able to eat that and thrive on it. And it's kind of coming back from that aerobic anaerobic analogy of like an endurance runner that's so conditioned for endurance, but never trains on any hills. So he never has the ability to go anaerobic. He's like running flat, flat, flat. And he's fast as hell running flat. But as soon as he hits a hill, he's gassed. Right. Yeah. I don't want that. I want to be good at both. And I want to have the ability to switch gears really quick too. Um, and you, you have to, you have to switch up your foods if you want to do that plain and simple. Yeah. I think that's really necessary in this day and age. Um, especially with how mobile we are and, 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 you know, I, I really like my routine, my schedule, my structure. And, and honestly, whenever, whenever it gets disrupted, it's almost devastating. You know, when, you throw something new at me and it's like, God, I have to react. I, I actually try to disrupt it on purpose in this way. I think it's what you're talking about is like, um, uh, Talib Nassim, Nassim Talib, whatever. The guy who wrote black Swan. Oh yeah. yeah. Fragile. He talks about anti-fragile and how people, and there is a point like, yeah, too much and you break. Right. But none of it, and you're then fragile. Where yep. if any of any of this thing hits you, yep. you break. Yep. So you want a little bit. You yep. want to get stronger. This is how we get stronger. Yep. It's the same thing with lifting weights. Totally. This is all the same principle. It's all the same principle, and we are, and that's why I have this almost just conflict of just morals in some of society right now, where it's like everything is designed to make things easier, and I'm just like, I get it. I too, I do. I but like, why are we wanting things to be easier? Like, how far do we go with getting easy before we are Wally in the movie Wally? Right, where we're just sitting there, like a blob. Like, we're pretty close to that. We're now. very close yeah, to our that. Our big gulps and our little people movers. Yeah, it's getting there, and it's like I. So I make a concerted effort to make things more difficult, not because I want to be a tough guy, but because I just feel like that's how we're going to stay alive. Yeah, and like. I don't want to live to be 200 years old if it means that I'm living like Wally in a people mover. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's not what it I want. It doesn't seem fun. No. No, it's, it's, I mean, that's, that aspect of the, of the movie was like a horror yeah. movie, you know? Yeah. It's, it was really depressing. I, it's, what a great movie, by the way. Seriously. Wally. Yeah. 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 Such a bleak um, look at the future possibility. Um, what, what was your first change? What was the thing that you put into place that got you on this path? Yeah, I mean, outside of outside of mindset, outside of you know, kind of the education piece, I've always been a believer that 
you know, you have to just believe in what you're doing. I don't believe in blind following the blind. I, I, I had to do a lot of research myself and, and make sure, fortunately, just the industry that I was in, I had a lot of awesome kind of out of the box physicians that were like, would think like that. So it kind of helped me out in learning. But you know, the first step that I did, I was like, I was like, okay, well, the easiest way for me to reduce the amount of food that I eat is to literally skip one damn meal. So before I ever got introduced to keto, I was doing intermittent fasting without really doing intermittent fasting. I was like, I'm just going to start skipping lunch was the main thing. I actually skipped lunch. And I was like, I'm going to have this, I'm going to go breakfast. And then I'm going to have this long ass gap between, you know, breakfast and dinner. And I lost like 15 pounds in like two weeks doing that. Wow. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. And then I realized, okay, well, actually, I'm actually doing something called time-restricted feeding. At the time, there wasn't even a whole lot calling it intermittent fasting. Like, it was just various forms of caloric restriction in the research. Intermittent fasting came into the research because people were talking about it. But time-restricted feeding has obviously been around for a while, which is intermittent fasting. Let's just call it what it is. Right. You're basically measuring the eating window versus measuring the fasting window. That's, like, the only difference, right? Yeah. Um, So then I said, okay, well, let me compress things a little bit more. Uh, and then, you know, this, what came over me was just this huge surge of just mental acuity. And the company that I was with at the time was going through an acquisition and it was an extremely stressful time. And I was like, wow, this is actually making me alert and making me focused and what's going on. And then I realized, okay, what's happening is this whole ketone thing. Um, I'm like, okay, well now let me take that you know, one or two meals that I'm eating in this compressed period of time. And let me see what happens if I make those meals higher calorie, but cut the carbs out. And then it was like, I felt freaking unbelievable so then it was a runaway train i mean it really was a runaway train to the point where i probably started going too far and got a little obsessed but um i think you've been there (laughs) yeah i've been there i for me i i just don't think i ever understood carbs you Mm -hmm. know what i mean i i when i when i first um started dieting i i it was just incredibly restrictive and all of the, the most success I ever had on a diet, it was just like, I get 500 calories a day or, and I'll lose weight and I'll lose weight fast and I can do this. I can suffer through it. Um, and then my understanding of carbs was that I had some intolerance to them. And when, when I eat kind of, um, I'm not talking about sugar. Sugar is a little bit different. But if I if I eat my carbs before and after the gym, I feel great. Mm-hmm. If I save them for nighttime, I don't feel great the next day. And so I just look at like wh- wh- how am I using this stuff, yeah. right? And if if I'm in the gym and drink a Gatorade, it's fine. I yeah. I feel fine. I yep. actually feel a little like I'm a little stronger, which yeah. is wild. If I drink a Gatorade at night, I wake up hungover the next day. right. So this is just like me going, I can use this stuff in a sane way. I also, you know, I wasn't nothing when I was, when I was really doing damage to myself, none of it was kind of clean and, and pointful food. I wasn't sitting down to eat four baked potatoes and three steaks. I was eating fast food. Which is like, I don't know how they get such calorically dense food, but there's got to be like hundreds of calories just in the bun yeah. of this shit. You know, there's sugar in the meat and yeah. everything is like, you know, on on steroids or yeah, high heights. It's like on meth. Um, you know, like <laughs> you picture like, the, like when I make a cheeseburger at home, which I make occasionally, I'm like, wait a second. I got this cheeseburger for 250 calories and yeah. it's delicious yeah. and it's fine and I don't feel like shit but the Carl's Jr. cheeseburger has 700 calories yeah. I don't understand this no it's so weird man it's like and I've seen so many people get confused and hit roadblocks because of that because if I were to suggest on a video that someone make a burger at home they think that it's going to be that same 700 calorie Carl's Jr. burger yeah and it's like I see it in the comments. I see it. it's like, like wow, like that is so. I wouldn't even think that that would cause that disconnect with people, but they see that. And in some ways, it's weird because they started putting calories on the menus, at least in California, like fast food, 
which illuminated it for people that were aware, but it actually created this weird barrier for other people where I think they just resigned to the fact that this is what they eat and okay, that's fine because if I make this burger at home, it's going to be just as much calories and it's twice as much work. So fuck it. I'm just going to do the one that doesn't require the work. Right. Like, no, if you make it at home, you have a choice of what meat you can use. You can go with a 93% lean and that's a big, you know, digression, different topic for a different day. But I mean, one of the quickest ways to change your calories is go from an 85 to a 93 meat. Dude, (laughs) dude. I mean, the patty's gigantic. It's red on the inside. I mean, when I did that, I was like, oh, my God, I got a 250-calorie burger. It's gigantic. It's delicious. Ground sirloin or something like that. You know, it's fantastic. But, yes, I know. I'm not shitting on fat. I'm not – I even – when I first went and started doing, quote, unquote, low fat on my own, I actually went too low fat. And that wasn't good. Yeah, that there was, too. That yeah. was not the way yeah. to do it. I felt like shit. Yeah. And so it really is like, to be perfectly honest, the only thing I, I still actively count every day is my grams of carbohydrates. Yeah. And it's pretty much the same way I was doing keto. Yeah. I just get a little bit more now and yeah. my, my meat choices are a little bit leaner. And that's pretty much how I live my life. Dude, you know what I found is... Some of the best results that I have gotten are when I go from being very, very fat adapted, using fats all the time, high, you know, high fat, low carb keto, and then transition into, okay, I'm going to go lower fat, moderate carbohydrate, still high protein. Some of the best results I get in a short amount of time are in that transitional period. And well, there's two reasons. One, I mean, caloric density changes dramatically. All of a sudden the volume of food is different, right? Because fats being nine calories per gram i mean it's the volume of food is less yeah and then all of a sudden you're eating sweet potatoes which is twice as much volume of food now granted there's cravings that come with the blood sugar potential roller coaster ride whatever yeah the thing is is that body composition wise like my stomach and the distensibility like it can't even accommodate that so i get full three quarters of the way through sweet potatoes and chicken yeah and that and also it kind of begs the question when you look at, you know, something called PPAR, I don't want to get super molecular in biochemy, but you know, if you're doing keto for a long time and you're very fat adapted, there is a lot of evidence that shows that your, your cells preferentially use whatever you've been giving it the most of, right? So if you've been feeding it a lot of fat, of course, from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes sense that it's going to adapt and start accommodating mitochondrial machinery to utilize that fat better because it's just trying to build efficiency. And then all of a sudden you're like, giving it carbohydrates and depriving yourself of dietary fat, well, it's going to still be seeking out fat. So it's going to start pulling from your adipose tissue because in that short interim period before it transitions and builds up glucose tolerance again, it's kind of fucking panicking, right? It's like, oh shit, I need, I need, some, I need some fats, but you're not giving me fat, so I got to pull them from somewhere. So I always get like this insanely positive response. And I mean, granted, feel a little brain foggy when it's happening because that's kind of the... But the point is, is that like that transition and going periodically low fat is so important. I personally think for body composition, but also just for adaptation. And I have been just reamed by my own keto community within that because like I've, anti-carbs, it's like, come on guys. Or like talking about um, periodically going low fat, even within a ketogenic protocol, like guys, like don't stop being so married to your fat. Like your fat is great. Right. It's so important. I agree. I totally get it. But like, you realize that that is where you're overdoing your calories. It's pretty clear as day. Like you're eating fat bombs, you're you know making these 400 calorie little little truffles, or you're having you know keto coffee or bulletproof coffee, which is like 600 calories. This is the only thing that is a little bit of a gripe for me with keto is when somebody's like, you don't have to worry about <laughs> how much you're eating, and I'm like, look. I didn't find that to be true. Yeah. That's not what the evidence suggests. No, it's not true. You know, if you're eating 5,000 calories a day and you're not using them, you're not going to lose weight. Yeah, 100%, you know? 100%. Even if like even if you're depleting your system of glycogen and the scale is going down, I guess technically you're losing weight, but is that yeah. the weight you want to be losing? No. And then not- that's going to adjust and you're probably going to gain weight. Yeah. Like that to me is the one and and people become very dogmatic on this point of like it doesn't matter i'm not eating carbs i can eat whatever i want yeah. and i'm like ah, it's not 
I don't think that's true. Yeah, no, it's not. Definitely not true. And it's just, and also the, uh, you know, eat fat to burn fat. Like, that sends the wrong message. I get what where that came from. Right. Like, I get it. Like, again, you know, sort of, I guess, the priming, if you want to call it that, you know, of getting the self-fat adapted. But, like, where on earth did it, someone think that you could consume 300 calories of fat that it would magically make you burn 400 calories of fat? <laughs> right. Yeah. At some point, in order to get the adipose tissue, you got to be, be in a withholding a yes. little bit, right? Yeah. Like, that's the way that works. Totally, man. I And I just so happen to at least feel with myself that when I am keto, I don't lose the fat or get the change in body composition during my actual strict, like, maintenance calorie keto mode. I get the body composition change when I go from that mode and then put myself into a deficit. Yeah. Like it's that building that shock and building that baseline and then shock acute stressor. Just like, you know, coming back to this again, that hormetic stressor, you have to have an acute stressor and coming back to like intermittent fasting, same kind of problem. And I, I, I'm just being real here. It's like, you should not be fasting every day. Like fasting should be the anomaly. It should be an acute stressor. It should be that your body building a stress response to just that, a stressor. If you do it every fucking day, that's not a stressor anymore. That's daily life. Yeah. You know, and of course your metabolism is going to adjust to that. It's If you're eating 1,600 calories a day, you would be a messed up individual if your body didn't adapt to that. It's going to adapt. So I sound pessimistic with this because I love intermittent fasting because it's probably the quickest injection of just caloric deficit that you can get. And sure, there are a bunch of other benefits, but I think most of the benefits that I speak to are lifestyle benefits, ease, things like that. You know, it's just easy as a dad to like, I just don't want to worry about breakfast, whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, but even anecdotally, I've had my buddy, Kevin Smith, I talked to him and he, he was doing intermittent fasting and he found that he was still gaining weight because he would just go like, well, in my window, I can eat whatever I want. And he was able yeah. to cram enough calories in that he wasn't losing weight. And so he, he had to even restrict from there. Yeah. And I have had a few friends who, who would say, like, it doesn't matter as long as I only eat for four hours, I can eat 10,000 calories, which I think is <laughs> really hard for a normal yeah. person to consume that much in four hours. It's a lot of food. Yeah. Um, but in theory, they were they were saying, like, I can, I'm going to eat cake and this and this and eat all this stuff and eat more calories than my body could possibly, but autophagy and this word and that word. Yeah. And it's like, I'm sorry. I don't think that's, I look, if there's a magical person out there that it works for, they're an outlier yeah. and this is not what people should be advertising. Yeah, I agree. Know? I agree. I think that getting excited about the science and getting excited about the research and how the body works is what leads to adherence for a lot of people. And that's what I'm all about is, is building excitement and passion. And I feel like that's what I try to do. Like I try to articulate subject matter in a way that gets people excited. Um, you know, admittedly, like earlier in my career, I, I feel like I was probably too dogmatic on what worked for me, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, probably even misconstruing science to a point where I shouldn't say misconstruing the research, but misconstruing how I articulated it to support my own success. Like what I had, well, this is why it worked. And, you know, as time has gone on and I've just gotten a chance to work with amazing people and amazing high performers and amazing military personnel that, you know, really dedicate their life to this stuff. I really realized that like these mechanisms that are happening within the body are so unbelievably fascinating and if we just learn how they work and we learn to use, understand what drives these mechanisms within the body and we use them as tools within our toolbox, we become heavily armed with the ability to do different things. Because absolutely, is there a time where intermittent fasting works amazingly well? 100%. I love it. Is there a time where keto probably works amazingly well? Probably a time for everybody where it could work amazingly well. And with information at our fingertips, we have two options. We can have it paralyze us and have us just go pigeonholed into one direction, or we can absorb it all as much as we can with an open mind and have the ability to do really awesome things. Like, yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If I could learn, if I knew 10 years ago that there were specific times where like, oh, I know now that I feel good after eating XYZ. I can't explain to you why. I don't know why. Maybe it's microbiome. Maybe it's, we don't know. I mean, who are we to think that like we know everything about our friggin' bodies? Right. Like seriously, we don't know shit. Yeah. Like what we have, we have like 
human beings conducting research with technology that we have today. 300, 400 years from now, we're going to know new shit about our bodies that we never would have even imagined possible today. So our job is to take what we know now and know what works for us at a bio-individual level and apply it within our arsenal. If you feel good and you perform good and your biomarkers look good eating American cheese and Vienna sausage, then fucking go for it. I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. I think it is um, wild, too, that the two areas we know least about in the body, the microbiome and the brain, are communicating with each other. Yeah, right. Like there's yeah. an interaction there that we don't really understand at all. Yeah. And uh, I mean, who knows how we keep affecting these things with the with the shit we're putting into them and what can pass the blood brain barrier and and then the hormones that are occurring in the brain that that we can't even really study because we can't really cut the brain open until the person's dead. Yeah. And then none of that stuff's yeah. firing. And it's like, you can't always see that on a, on a cat scan. You yeah. know what I mean? Like these things are still hidden to us to some degree. Dude, it's so, you know, and, and I'm going to bring this up because I know, you know, you were just on, on, on Joe Rogan and I know he's big into this world. So it's, it's relevant to even talk about it, but like adaptogens, right? Like, one could misconstrue adaptogens like, you know, adaptogenic compounds, like let's just say, you know, for sake of just, you know, high dose lion's mane, things like that. Some people go the psilocybin route, whatever. Okay. But if you look at that, um, if you look at like the 1950s research of like general adaptation system in the body, we have a stress response and then there is an acute like response to that stress where adrenaline, all that stuff goes up. And then there's the resolution phase where your body like adapts and then there's an exhaustion phase where if you push it too far, your body gets so overly stressed out. Still kind of that hormetic curve. Um, the reason I bring this up is like when we look at like the ability of our body to adapt and change to things, kind of nerding out on this because I've just been reading research on it. It's so wild, like how adaptogens work. If you look at the mice studies, because we can do these kind of studies in mice, you can't do them in humans, like similar to like you can't cut up open a person's brain while they're alive yeah you can do an fmri scan and it can tell you a little bit but with a mouse you can i mean as messed up as it sounds you, you can, can control all variables yeah you can control variables you can torture them you can stress them you can whatever you know and like you look at the data like okay when you have mice that are forced to swim uh they will swim until about three minutes until they give up right if you give them adaptogenic compounds, in this particular case, it was like uh, Eularococcus, it was like uh, Shazandra, some of these other like well-known adaptogenic compounds at very high doses, 22 minutes. Whoa! And it's like, okay, that's not ergogenic. That's purely adaptogenic and all that was doing. And then they look at their heat shock protein levels. Are you familiar with heat shock proteins? No. Okay, so like you look at like Rhonda Patrick's research and stuff like that. It's pretty, like heat shock proteins elevate when we exercise. They're a, uh, it's called a chaperone protein. Basically, when we are going through heat stress through exercise or a sauna or anything like that. Uh, obviously, heat is a stressor, so our cells go through this sort of folding and unfolding, and you can have these clumpings of different proteins that are inside your cell. Uh, the way it was explained to me that makes a lot of sense, if you had a balloon and that balloon was filled with air and you had uh, low-power magnets that were floating around in the balloon and then all of a sudden you let the air out of the balloon, those magnets would like clump together. Yeah. They're not supposed to clump together, right? right? So what these chaperone proteins do is they like act as like little pieces of rubber that are in there to prevent those from like clumping. Okay. So you, whoops, you have that ex happening in your in your cell, uh, and when you're exposed to high heat, like sauna like stuff like that, yeah, you build resiliency because you improve these HSP, you know, heat shock proteins. So it also happens when we're exercising. Well, they're found like with adaptogens. That's what was going on. So they're having, that's just one unit that they measured, that right? That was building so those. like a typical stress response would be like 3.2 PG per ml. Then like you look at uh, like general bout of exercise is going to be like five and a half to six PG per ml of HSPs. Literally just giving them adaptogens and then having them swim it went up to like 15. So crazy adaptogenic response. And I'm not saying this as like advocating for any kind of adaptogens per se, but I'm saying like, okay, we are starting to learn that there is certain functions of different things within our body. And you look at the world of people that are looking at a lot of the research of like psilocybin and some of these even microdose things. It's fascinating research. Yeah. A lot of it can't make the mainstream because of obvious reasons, but it's telling us like what our brain is actually capable of and how our brain is driving pretty much everything. Are these things that, that the adaptogens 
can you look at them in people or is it happening only in the brain? Yeah, you can look at them in people. Uh, you, you know, there's a few human clinicals. Like when you look again at Eulercocus and you look at like some Shizandra, there's some like clinical studies. There's a meta-analysis of like 35 studies. I think it was like 6,000 people. They found, they looked at people under, but it's all very anecdotal because they when you're looking at like that many people so like people in extremely stressful situations uh, ranging from temporary deafness like where they would like just cut out or or if they had a disease or something where they would go deaf and obviously it's a stressful situation um uh mountain rescue deep sea like diving emergencies like when things go wrong and they're measuring they found that yes when adaptogens were involved their response to stress was much much better and overall if you look at like the mice studies too you see their their resiliency their baseline is elevated if their stress response is a one at the beginning and then you shock them or give them a stressor and it bounces up to five and then it comes back down if they were not using adaptogenic compounds it might come back down to just a one again or maybe a 1.1 they get a little stronger but using adaptogens it would come down to like a two you know right. they get stronger their baseline would get better and again i know joe talks about this kind of stuff all the time it's just it's very fascinating and up until like the last year I kind of just brushed it off because I wasn't, I just wasn't interested. And that's kind of like what I do with my content is a lot of it is driven by what I'm interested in. Yeah. And, uh, and now I'm starting to get really damn interested in that because again, in working with the military, I've seen like they, it's the brain. Like we, we were reaching somewhat of a limit in some ways with what we know with our physical body, with at least what we know right now. And if you look at sort of the hockey stick of all these different achievements that were happening even 20, 30 years ago, right? Like, you know, going into the uh, Tony Hawk doing a 1080 and then all of a sudden everyone else is doing a 1080. And yeah. like we had this big uptick and now some of that stuff's slowing down. Like maybe our physical bodies are starting to flatline a little bit. So now we got to start looking at, okay, well, how do we override that with the brain? And the whole reason I went down this rabbit hole is because that gut brain axis is the most insane thing that like when you look at the communication and the vagus nerve that you know 80% of the nerve cells that are in our vagus nerve are traveling from the gut to the brain yeah. and only 20% are traveling from the brain to the gut. Yeah. So what does that tell us? It tells us that 80% of the signal that's even involved in that enteric system is gut communicating to the brain. The tw the other 20% might be the you know, you you know when you're driving down the road and you're going a little too fast and the highway and you see a highway patrol car and you get that like pit in your stomach all of a sudden yeah. i mean that's probably that signal brain triggers gastrointestinal response right um it's it's so but nuts. but i mean it's fucking fascinating <laughs> so that wild. there's a whole universe literally to study that we really don't understand at all and but something's happening yeah there is some symbiosis there oh my gosh unbelievably and now like there's even like the, the skin microbiome and now we're seeing like community touching people hugging shaking hands crossing that microbiome where you're actually hey i'm getting some of your microbiome you're getting some of mine and it's building that diversity so we're ultimately creating this like unanimously healthy compilation of people yeah i mean this is probably so inappropriate to talk about but do you think obviously neither of us are epidemiologists or that's what makes this. That's PhD what makes this fun. Scientists, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, we're not total nerds, but um, do you think? Because uh, I think about this stuff, and and I don't know, but do you think that taking a year off from human contact is actually detrimental to some degree? Yeah. You know, and obviously there's something going around where we needed to do it, but like, what are the ramifications of that going to be? Yeah, it's going to be something. I yeah, think. I think. I mean, obviously the mental piece. Obviously, the dependency on mobile device, the dependency on that is obviously going to change something. I mean, there's a lot of secondary things. But I think just for the nature of this conversation, the literal human contact, um, you know, not touching people, not um, that is changing something. Yeah. And I think that we're going to see a lot of research coming out on that because I know a lot of people have jumped on that to really take a look at it because isolation is very interesting. Like to some degree, isolation can help you, but again just like everything else you know it allows you to catch your own thoughts but no one is just it's not like we were just isolated getting to sit in a comfortable beach most of us were isolated with screaming toddlers and you know <laughs> so and stress how are we going to make it through this yeah right and just uncertainty where are we going to get toilet paper <laughs> that's a huge driver right yeah so but I, the the skin microbiome piece and like touching people and there, there's studies on like even like sexual activity and how it changes between partners like how like 
maybe some of the drive and like serotonin and dopamine that changes when two people have sex is actually a result somewhat of the microbiome transfer too, which is just, it's just fascinating, man. It's just, we have more bacteria in our gut than we do cells in our body. Yeah. So clearly those little fuckers are doing something. There's more of them <laughs> than there is of us. Yes. Absolutely. That's a weird thought, man. Yeah. It's so crazy. And yeah. it's just, it's so hard to, to research it. And another thing that's been really wild is when you look at, okay, so in the younger population, they say gut diversity is important. And it's very clear for them to say that again, I, they say that as a blanket statement and they're very clear on that. Like we don't know which strains are good. So let's just say have an equal amount of all and you have the best chance of success. Sure. Um, but one thing they did notice is that in older populations, like in people in their 80s and 90s, um, they found that diversity isn't necessarily as important. What was more important was uniqueness. And I found this fascinating. So by uniqueness, they meant like the healthier people were people that had very like anomaly bacteria. So like if Bob is 90 years old and he had like a, uh, you know, let's say XYZ strain, Mary is 90 years old. She has a bunch of ABC strain. Tim is 90 years old. He's doing well. And he has a bunch of QRS strain. The, the uniqueness is what drives the best outcome in terms of their health. And what they've concluded with that, at least somewhat, is that, okay, what that means is that if these people are living a healthy life at an old age, they have a unique biome because their microbiome has adapted in ways to compensate for their weaknesses as an individual. Right. So as we're younger and we're generally healthy, diversity is best. But as we get older, you actually don't want diversity. You want a skewed result, not knowing which one you actually want, <laughs> but you want a heightened result, you know, of XYZ bacteria in this person. You want uniqueness because that indicates their microbiome is adapting and changing and offsetting whatever poor thing is going on in their body, which again is like, telling us so much that this bacteria we need to be taking care of it because it is driving compensatory effects within our body as we age yeah there's no evidence and and i don't um i don't say this totally seriously but i do think when whenever i think about the microbiome i think that's that's the ufos that's what yeah. they left us. That's what they've given us. I yeah, think right. These are the aliens, dude. That's a good point. You know, I mean I, I, I mean, I say that slightly as an absurdist, but like, yeah. you know, I, I, it's so wild that there's more of them than there are of us. That they're having a huge influence on us, and that we don't understand them at all. It's yeah. this thing we can't see. It's in every person. It's around us. It's inside of us. It's wild, dude. Yeah. Dude, it's it's so unreal, and I think we're. I think we're centuries away from understanding, you know, it to a degree where it could actually help us. Cause... Yeah, but how cool would it be if we discovered uh, the type of uniqueness that would best suit each person and then the way to make that thrive? Yeah, you know, like... totally, man. Well, have you seen the research on um, or just anyone talk about Velenella before? Uh -uh. Okay, that's a bacteria that is in uh, they found in marathon runners. They're like, why are these marathon runners all like after long runs having this huge elevation in this particular strain of bacteria? And uh, they realized, okay, well, this villanella feeds on lactate. So when athletes are working at an extreme intensity, they are producing a lot of lactate and it's feeding this one strain of bacteria. Uh, okay, that's great. So what they did is they said, okay, let's take this villanella and let's put it into mice and let's extract it from the humans, and put it into mice. They put it into the mice and all of a sudden the mice became extraordinary athletes. Right. Like what the hell? <laughs> can we? Can I have some? Yeah, that's How exactly I, what I, I have. Said. A exactly what pill? I said. Yeah, it's, are they developing this? I you should it, develop this. It, I think it's in some strains already, but it's that's that's the caveat, right? Is it feeds on lactate? So unless you're busting your ass training, you're not going to support that bacteria, right? Well, right? they they got to make a a, pro, a prebiotic of lactate yeah. and a probiotic <laughs> of villanella, and you take it as like a double. <laughs> whammy dose every morning and then you can run a lot yeah there you go who cares about anything else you can be the most unhealthy person in the world but you can run a lot you can run a lot yeah. that's it and it's 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 just intriguing i mean i love going down that rabbit hole because it is like a sci-fi movie it's so and you have to always preface it with like okay none of this really matters yet right but it matters in the or sense. maybe it's the most important thing yeah we don't exactly, know exactly right? you know i think it's i think it's a a, a real wild time to be alive and i and i and while I um, I get down sometimes about the the, the landscape of uh, Western diet, 
Um, I also think what an interesting time. No, no other time ha- have has the populace and mass been able to sit back and think as much about what they eat. And you know what I mean? Yeah, like totally. It's there's always been such scarcity, and now it's like holy shit, we've got a lot, we've got an abundance. How do we how do we use it? What's yeah. the best way to use it? Totally. It's yeah. you know it's it can like I said earlier it can paralyze us or we can use it. Right. You know that's that's entirely up to us and. It's the, the beauty and the curse of the internet, too, is, you know, everyone has a voice, which can be a little bit rough sometimes, but it also allows us to, you know, absorb a lot, good, bad, and ugly, and, you know, come to a better consensus for us as individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Thomas, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, man. Always a pleasure. And now for the Q&A. Here is a question for you from someone named Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Jeff says... Uh, He says, it seems to be the norm that the majority of people who have a struggle with weight loss or body image always have a negative self image, no matter how fit or not fit they may be, they tend to see themselves in a negative way. Then he says, this is not the case for me. I've struggled with my weight my whole life, but I always felt good. He says, uh, it's only when I actually look in the mirror that I'm reminded otherwise. Any thoughts on this? Yeah. Uh, well, I just talked to um, a comedian who I love named Stavros Halkius. Halkius, thank you. Stavros Halkius. Halkius. He's just Stavi baby, you know? You I know him as Stavi baby. And then I always think of Stavi.biz because that's where his his fantastic calendar is. Um, but like... He doesn't have a negative self-image. I don't even think he has a negative self-image when he looks in the mirror. You know, he's like, mm-hmm. he's like fucking feeling himself. Um, and then starts uh, is dieting for comfort because he wants to be more physically comfort, which is fine. And, and um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I I always thought of Jack Black as a guy who like had who was super positive about himself who would take his shirt off and stuff like that and then I even saw like he was doing a diet. So I don't think it's it's it has to be um an absolute truth that anybody who uh is quote unquote overweight um or anybody who wants to lose weight has super negative self images um and then i think it's real interesting what jeff was saying that he doesn't feel down on himself but then he looks in the mirror and he does so there are moments of that it sounds like i just think you know even with like total narcissists um there've got to be times where they're like you know i heard about jennifer lopez uh i don't know how true this is but but i heard that um that and this is 20 plus years ago, a a day on a movie was shut down because she was having a bad hair day. And I go like, Jennifer Lopez has got to be one of the most self-confident people on earth. I don't know if that's true or not. That's my perception of her. I've I've, I don't think I've actually ever met her before. Um, And then like, she can wake up and look in the mirror and go like, fuck, this is a disaster. My hair is a disaster. We can't work today. Like I'm going to, we're going to shut everything down. Um, So I I think this idea of negative self-image is, I think it must affect everyone. I think, you know, supermodels probably feel that they don't look good sometimes. And, um, and then obviously for, people who have real issues with this it's just more of a constant where um there are a lot of reminders you know um getting out of breath walking up three stairs and you're like oh yes um and also i look terrible because this is reminding me that i'm massively overweight and out of shape and have no good my cardio sucks or just like god you know i didn't need assistance getting up those three stairs i mean there's a bright side like i'm 500 pounds and i made it up three stairs by myself okay i'm out of breath but like i did it i'm not in a wheelchair you know i mean i think that 
there's a glass half full glass half empty aspect to this um but like if you're if you're going around feeling good uh and only having momentary reminders of like not feeling good i don't think you um i think great i think the more we can feel good about ourselves the better so that's awesome love it no i don't know was there a question did i answer his question i don't yeah he he, you know he's just basically saying he does from what i got from this that he doesn't feel that way um you know what were your thoughts on it basically he just says it's only when he looks in the mirror but he doesn't walk around feeling super upset about it all the time yeah that's great man i think that's awesome and um you know like do we really need to look in the mirror all that often uh check our face for boogers and like make sure there's no sleep in our eyes in the morning but like Mm -hmm. i don't even need a mirror to brush my teeth so like the actual necessities of having a mirror are not even there right um yeah fuck the mirror let's all sit shiva for the rest of our lives and cover the mirror um (laughs) yeah I think that's great. Love it. I, I, I think um, if the, the better we can feel about ourselves, I, I think it's only a, a benefit. Thank you yeah. for your question. If you have a question that you want me to discuss uh, my fucking ridiculously verbose and uh, overly significant ideas on this episode about, please submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. <laughs>